and this paralyzed man. Our, our gut instinct is to say that they, they loved him, their friends, maybe their relatives. But have you ever considered the fact that maybe the guy owed them money? It's not in the text, I don't know. He owes them money, and the only way they're going to get it back is if he can get up and get a job. I, I, I don't think that's the case, but I wonder, right? I, I wonder about that. I wonder, too, about the um, homeowner in this passage. Uh, the house is too full, it's too crowded to get to Jesus, so they go up on the roof and they dig through the roof. Now, the word dig, it's appropriate language because the houses in Capernaum, you would build your house and have a flat roof, you'd lay sticks across the, the roof, and then you'd fill in the gaps with mud that would then harden and become your, your roof. And so they did have to dig through the roof. Um, it must have been a terrible mess. And I wonder who fixed the house. And, and I, more importantly, I wonder to myself, would your homeowner's insurance cover this? Would they deny the claim because it's an act of God? Now, is that a possibility? I have questions. Regardless, the Bible doesn't answer any of those questions that I have. Jesus, though, in this story, takes a, a very odd turn. And it's a turn that's so odd that the people that are uh, listening notice how odd the turn is. Look at verse 5. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Incidentally, also another sign that you are God. But he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Uh, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, <coughs> take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. The logic of the story is not hard to follow. You, you can follow the logic of the story. The healing of the paralyzed man proves that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. It proves that he has divine power. It proves that he is God in the flesh. This is one of the places in the Bible we would go if we wanted to talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is the God-man. We believe that about him. We believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man, fully God and fully man, or maybe even better, truly God and truly man, divine in human natures, united in one person. This is what we believe as a congregation about the Lord Jesus. And all of us who have members, who are members, we've signed the book, we've checked the box, this is what we believe together. And we believe that the God-man, this Lord, has the authority to forgive sins. That's what we believe. If that's true, then, and here we come to the question that I want to puzzle over today. If that's true, that we believe in this Lord, and that this Lord has the authority and the willingness to forgive sins, can you imagine hearing from the Lord Jesus himself, from his voice, Son, your sins are forgiven. If we believe that about him, then why is it that we, so many of us, are so bowed down with shame? 
Why do so many of us sitting in this room come in every week uh, brokenhearted and discouraged as if forgiveness can't really be that easy and it can't really apply to you? As if you're the member of the family of God that somehow snuck in through some sort of loophole and God's going to figure it out at some point in time. Because the, the good news of forgiveness can't be just that good, at least not for you. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about shame. And we're going to approach it from the perspective of what we believe about the Lord Jesus. Do you remember several months ago, it wasn't several, it was like two, uh, we started going through church, uh, uh, the church's doctrinal statement. We've been moving through it section by section. It's not our normal practice, uh, but we have been doing it together uh, based on a suggestion made to me from a lecture by Carl Truman. Carl Truman was talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a great uh, reformer, a theologian, a teacher. He was also a pastor and a, a Bible teaching pastor. But one of the things he recognized is that his Bible teaching, one of the things that regular Bible teaching does not necessarily do is that it doesn't lend itself to systematic doctrinal teaching. Luther's solution to the problem was to write catechisms, books of, of questions and answers that families were supposed to read and memorize that would teach them systematic truths from the scriptures. We summarize our systematic truths in our doctrinal statement, and we're moving through it by, uh, section by section. So far we've talked about the Bible, we talked about the Trinity, we talked about God the Father, and today we're going to talk about God the Son. And every week, my goal, as we have been going through this, is to touch on four different questions. Number one, what does it mean? Uh, that is, what does the, the, the words, what do they mean? Secondly, can you show this in the Bible that it's true? The third question I want to ask and answer is, is it believable? That is, are there good uh, reasons to believe this? And then fourth, I want to ask and answer the question, how does it apply? When we looked at the Bible, we thought about how to listen to a bad sermon. Then when we talked about the Trinity, we thought about what it means or how you know that you love someone. What does real love look like? When we talked about God the Father, we talked about worry. That was a, a few weeks ago. And now with God the Son before us, our topic is shame. Shame is, is not a word that we use with much precision. The topic is vast. The topic itself is, is vast. There's many, many colors to shame. But most of the time, we're inclined to say, if, you, if you're feeling uh, bad about something, you most often say, I feel guilty. That's not very precise. Don't, don't correct someone who says, I feel guilty. But what they really mean when they say that is, I feel shame. Here's the difference. Uh, guilt is objective. It is a, a statement about your standing before God's law. How you measure up objectively to God's law. Have you performed or not? You are either guilty or innocent. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Guilt does. Um, and sometimes, if you have no feelings related to your guilt, it doesn't mean you're not guilty. It just means you're a psychopath. Now, shame, though, is your subjective response to your objective guilt. It's shame is focused on how you feel, how you evaluate yourself. Shame is that sense, that, that pain or that fear or that conviction, that self-consciousness that comes when you realize you are guilty. It's a sense of pollution. It's a sense of vileness. It's a sense of failure. Shame comes to us as a response to what you have done or what you have failed to do. 
Sometimes we experience shame because of what we have done. And sometimes we experience shame because of what people around us or close to us have done. Every week in church, there are people who come and they sit down in these pews, broken-hearted parents filled with shame over the choices that their children are making. Uh, There are cultures, ours is not one of them, there are cultures where shame is the currency of that culture. Patty Toland, one of our outreach partners, is an expert in this, these cultures where shame is the currency. It shouldn't surprise you as a follower of Jesus that shame would, would appear regularly. The Bible says that our adversary, the devil, is an accuser. There's a soundtrack that he plays regularly in the, in the minds of God's people, this slithering voice that whispers in your head, how can you think that God would forgive you for that sin that you just committed again? How many times are you going to confess that sin? Do you really think that God would still love you? If the people around you really knew what you were really like, they'd be horrified. They would kick you out. You stand and read that covenant, you don't measure up to that. God has favorites, I'm sure, and you're not one of them. Over and over and over again, you commit the same sin. You confess it and confess it and confess it. Do you think God is tired of your cheap tears? Do you recognize that voice? I learned uh, this week one of the ways that shame manifests itself. It's terrible. I was listening to an interview with Justin Hokum. Justin Hokum is a pastor and an author, a counselor. And uh, his area of expertise is in helping adults and children who are the victims of abuse. Men and women, both men and women, can be involved in uh, marital abuse. They can be victims of marital abuse. Statistically, though, it is women that he uh, deals with mostly who experience physical, verbal, sexual abuse within marriage. Uh, This interview was uh, prompted by some of the controversies that have been in our news recently. Justin Holcomb said that a common thread among the women that he and his wife counsel, Christian women that he counsels who have experienced abuse in their relationships, a common conviction that these women have is that their abuse is ordained by God because of something that they have done. Because they had an abortion or because they engaged in premarital sex or because like their abuser often says to them, they're not good enough wives so that they deserve the abuse, that God sent it to them to punish them for the terrible things that they have done, that they deserve to be abused. That's the terrible, accusing voice of shame. It's a horrible lie. Your marriage vows do not create room for abuse, and abusers need to be confronted, disciplined by the church, and reported to the authorities. But shame, shame is, is a cruel master. We're going to talk this morning about what we believe about Jesus and how it confronts shame. In fact, here are four ways that what we believe about Jesus confronts our shame. We're going to read the doctrinal statement first, what it says. This is a section, I think, three or four. I can't remember off the top of my head. We're going to read this. It's on the yellow sheet that's in your bulletin, if you want to take that out. We're going to read this, this, that italicized paragraph in the middle. And then we're going to talk about what we believe about Jesus that confronts our shame. So let's read the paragraph, shall we? We believe in Jesus Christ, 
God's one and only eternal Son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he is fully God and fully human. He lived a sinless life, died on a cross for our sins, and rose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where at the right hand of God the Father, he intercedes for us as our high priest and advocate. So what do we believe about the Lord Jesus that confronts our sin? Four things. Number one, we believe in his wonder as the God-man. We believe in his wonder as the God-man, that he is awe-inspiring, that he is awesome, that he is full of wonder. Just by nature of his being, we are drawn to worship and delight in and treasure him. He's, uh, who is he? The first few lines of our doctrinal statement are devoted to describing his nature. Who is he? He is the God-man. He's God's one and only eternal son who took to himself a human nature. Here's how Bruce Ware puts it. He writes it so well, I think. Whereas, he says, everything intelligent begins with whereas. You know it's going to be smart. Whereas the eternal Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, has no beginning and will have no end, the incarnate Son, the Son of David, the Son of Mary, the Messiah, had a beginning in time and space. This Son, Jesus the Christ, was brought into being through the power of the Holy Spirit as the divine nature of the eternal Son was miraculously joined together with a created human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Did you get that? Of course you did. It's well put. It's well stated. Divine nature, human nature, fully joined together in one person. The best explanation of this is in a song that's in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. So turn to me in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. The rest of the passages that we're going to look at are written on that yellow sheet, but I want you to turn to Philippians 2. This is a passage of Scripture we are well familiar with, and uh, we read it often. And it is one of the best places, if not the best, maybe John 1 would have a, or something in Colossians or Hebrews. But this is in the top of verses that speak about who Jesus is by nature. All right, we're going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to talk about some key words in this passage, four of them that I want to show you. Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped, I learned in the King James. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's some key words. The first key word in this passage is the word nature. Nature. Your translation might say form. I'm used to the word form, who being in the form of God. Now the problem with the word form is that the word form might refer to someone's shape, but not their substance. If you're wondering about that, think about chocolate. So I shop uh, uh, every now and then at the Evans Candy Store. It's a fine place to go buy chocolate. So you walk into the Evans Candy Store and along the back wall they have forms. Lots and lots of forms. Things in the shape of, uh, a chocolate in the shape of things. So they have basketballs and chocolate baseballs and chocolate trains and chocolate hammers and chocolate, I should have brought samples, clearly. Chocolate cell phones. Lots of forms. Lots of shapes. So there's the form of those things, 
but the substance is actually chocolate, right? It's not really a basketball. It's chocolate in the shape, in the form of a basketball. Well, the, the word translated nature here in the text refers not just to something's shape, but to its substance too, what it is. Here is a description of the divine nature of the eternal Son. He is in very nature God. That same word nature is, is used in verse 7 to talk about Jesus being in the nature of a servant, his human nature. There's a second key word here besides nature. The second key word is the word equality, equality. He did not consider equality something to be used to his own advantage. That word equality is the word isa. In Greek, it's the word isa. For those of you who are geometry nerds in the room, it's the same word as isosceles triangle. Isosceles, isosceles triangle. An isosceles triangle, if I remember correctly, is a triangle where all the sides are equal in length. Um, Jesus did not consider equality with God because he had it by virtue of who he is. He did not consider... Am I wrong about that? A little bit? Two sides are the same length. Oh, I've never been good at geography, so that's all right. So... Isa still means equal. That's the important point. Not my own idiocy, okay? Follow me here. Jesus did not consider equality because he had this equality, because he has it by nature. He did not consider it something he had to, to cling to, to hold on to, to, to hang on to for dear life. It was his by virtue of who he is. Equality. Now the third and fourth key words kind of go together. Uh, uh, the, the third key word is the word nothing. He made himself nothing. Your translation might say, he emptied himself. And then the fourth key word is the word taking. And now we have some strange math. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. How does this work? How can you subtract by addition? How can you empty yourself by taking to yourself something? That's very strange math. How does that work? Uh, Bruce Ware uses an illustration I think I've shared with you before uh, of shopping for a car. Let's imagine here that you're going to buy a brand new car. You have extra funds and you want to go buy a brand new car. It's your time to buy the car of your dreams. So you go to the showroom and you pick out a cherry red convertible sports car. It's the one you exactly want. It's in the showroom and you ask the uh, salesman if you could take it for a, a test drive. He gives you the keys, you get in it, and you, you love it, and you start driving the car. You drive and drive and drive. You drive uh, out, uh, 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 out of town into the country, and you come to an unpaved road, and you think this will be fun. But it's been raining. It's been raining terribly. And in answer to Fred's prayers, it's been raining. And, and uh, uh, you drive on this road, and mud splatters up all over that red car and, and, and obscures that shiny finish. You pull it back into the dealership, and the dealer comes out, and he says, you've ruined this car. And you say, I haven't ruined to it. I've added to it. It's got all this beautiful Lancaster County mud. You know what you could grow with Lancaster County mud? I have added to this car. Now, did you add to it or did you take from it? That shiny finish is still there, but it's, it's severely covered by this mud. Bruce Ware uses a phrase that I'm going to repeat a couple times that you should remember. The car still has those fine qualities. They are possessed 
but not expressed. Possessed, but not expressed. This is subtraction by addition. That's what the Bible is describing here. It happened over 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit came over the Virgin Mary and she conceived. There was deity possessed, but not expressed. This is why it's possible for the God-man who knows all things to learn because there is deity possessed but not expressed. This is why it's possible for the all-powerful God to grow. Jesus Christ at age 20 was stronger than he was at age 2, yet he was omnipotent in his nature. How is that possible? Deity possessed but not expressed. Here's another one of Ware's illustrations. He says, imagine a mighty king who lives in a palace and he rides out with his uh, soldiers and his chariot is surrounded by them and uh, he notices on the street a beggar and he begins to wonder what life must be like as a beggar. So he returns to his palace, he takes his royal robes off and he puts on the stained, uh, smelly clothes of a beggar and he walks out into the streets. He stays there for six months. When he is hungry, because he is the king, he could call a a dozen bakers to bake him a fine cake, a fine loaf of bread. But he doesn't, because he's taken to himself the role of a beggar, the nature of a beggar. When he's sick, he can call the royal physicians to come and treat him. But he doesn't. He's a beggar. He defers. When he's beaten up by some street thugs, he can call the royal army. He's the king. He has the authority to do that. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's living like a beggar. I think of what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what he said to his disciples when he was being arrested? He said to them, Don't you think that I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you think I have that right? Because deity possessed but not expressed. A king who wants to understand the life of a beggar might walk the street for six months without the use of his royal prerogatives. Philippians 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus came and became one of us so that he might become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And now Philippians 2 turns from this great description of the Lord Jesus and it turns and it calls us to worship him to wonder at him, to marvel, to be in awe of him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, shame, shame is a very small feeling. It weighs very heavily upon us. I don't mean that it's, it's not powerful. What I mean is it, it's a very tightly packed response. The focus of shame is very small. It's on you and who you are and what you have done or what you haven't done. But brothers and sisters, what Paul is writing about here in Philippians 2, he's saying, here is God the Son. Here he is. He's the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great joy of our faith, our great hope, our great expectation is that we're going to see him as he is, and seeing him we will be moved to wonder, to awe, to reverence, to praise. He's so big 
that our shame becomes small. Small compared to Him. It's strange when we gather to worship. Don't you walk in sometimes and you sit down and you think to yourself, I don't feel like worshiping today. And the Lord Jesus is very small in your mind and heart when you sit down here. We have to work sometimes at this. We have to work sometime to remind ourselves. This is, this is one of the curses of being wealthy people like we are in the United States. We have so many things to distract us, and the Lord Jesus can become very small. And one of the reasons that we gather together with one another is to say to each other on a regular basis, oh, the Lord Jesus is magnificent. He's awesome. He's full of wonder. Shame doesn't have the room to oppress you in the face of the bigness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is his wonder. Now let's move on this morning. What else is true of the Lord Jesus that confronts our shame? Secondly here, we're going to talk about the sinlessness of him as the perfect God-man. We believe in his sinlessness as the perfect God-man. Our doctrinal statement echoing a verse that we're going to read in just a moment says that the Lord Jesus lived a sinless life. And some of you I know immediately are thinking to yourself, of course he lived a sinless life. He's God the Son. How could he not live a sinless life? He's God. Temptation can't touch him. This is like attacking a Navy battleship with a BB gun. You're not going to do much damage. Except that's not how the Bible pictures the Lord Jesus in his experience of temptation. It's interesting. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It's written down there. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. The text says, uh, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now we're going to skip down to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, and ask yourself, how was it that the Lord Jesus did not sin? How is it that he didn't do that? During the days of his life, of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Fervent cries and tears. Does that sound like a battleship and a BB gun? Not really. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but I think that the reason I believe that the book of Hebrews tells us to fight sin like Jesus is because Jesus fought sin as an expression of his humanity in dependence on the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. He used the same resources, the exact same resources that we have to live obedient lives. Deity possessed but not expressed. But key here is the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. He faced every sort of temptation there is. The temptation to envy, the temptation to greed, fornication, laziness, pride, hatred, impatience, rage, revenge. All of those temptations, Jesus faced them over and over again and he passed them all every time. Again, the problem with shame is that shame often has its focus in the wrong place. It focuses on what you have done and who you are. Before you always, constantly, is your failing record 
And there's no use denying it. We should talk about it. You have a terrible record. Don't minimize it. Let's not pass over this. The Bible is graphic about this. Because you're made in God's image, every person has inherent dignity. And you have inherent dignity being made in God's image. That's true. But your record is deplorable. You have been hateful and hypocritical. You've been selfish. You've been self-centered. You are mean. You've been degrading. You've been lazy and lustful and violent and judgmental. You have torn people down with your tongue just because you felt like it and it made you feel a little bit better to get it off your chest, so you say. You've been haughty. You've been perverse. Your record is terrible. It's worse than you know. No one is able to stand before God because of his or her record, including you and especially me. There is only one record that passes muster. There's only one set of footprints that have been left on the planet that have been unstained by sin, and they were the Lord Jesus. It's only him. It's only his record. If you're ashamed of your record, you should be ashamed of your record because it's terrible. But the good news is that when you turn to God by faith, he credits you with Jesus' record, his perfect record. I want you to imagine it's time for a race. It's going to be run a spiritual marathon. There's only two contestants, you and Jesus. So you get up to the starting line, bang, the pistol sounds, and Jesus starts the race. He could finish it because he is the God-man. He could finish it in record time. In fact, he could turn time backwards and finish the race in negative time. He could do that. But he runs it just like a normal human being. Except his race is, is perfect. His stride is just right. He takes the water that's offered to him at all those stations and, 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 and he keeps himself perfectly hydrated. He, he leans into the hills just right and he, he doesn't get off pace when he's going down them. He, he sweats. He groans sometimes. Looks like he hits the wall once or twice. But he keeps going and he runs a perfect marathon like no one has ever run. Now what happened to you? Bang! The gun sounds and you fell over because your shoelaces were tied together. And, and you were so impressed with yourself you were waving to all your friends Well, actually you were trying to take a selfie and you started and you hit the ground and you didn't break your fall so you broke your nose and you scraped up your head. But you, you get yourself arranged and you start running backwards. Right? Because you think you're that awesome. You're going the wrong way. Someone comes, they, they get you going in the right direction, and you, you go about half a mile, and then you throw up the cocoa puffs that you had for breakfast. You were carb loading, and then you, you threw them up. And then, then you saw a butterfly, and you chased it off the path into the bushes. You found a pond, and you laid down, and you took a nap. And you got back on the course eventually. But let's admit it, you hired a taxi to take you miles 3 through 10. And then you stole some kid's bike about mile 12. And you rode it for six miles before you broke it and threw it off the side of the road. And there were a couple of miles along the way in the middle where you kind of worked hard as best you could. Finally, you chugged across the finish line. Jesus has been there for a long time. 
He's standing in the winner's circle, the gold medals around his uh, neck already, and he calls you over. He says, hey, come here. Me? He brings you up on the winner's platform, and he stands you next to himself, and he, he says to you, you, you had a pretty rough race. I said, yeah, yeah, I did. He says to you, I ran my race, but believe it or not, I was with you every step of the way on your race. I want you to stand here next to me. And he takes the medal, and he stretches the lanyard out, and he puts it around your neck, too. He leans in with his arm and he says, smile, and the press is there. They're there to take pictures. So Jesus smiles and you just look dumbfounded. And the photographers say, hey, Jesus, and uh, you, the, the person who looks so shocked to be up there, how does it feel to be in the winner's circle? Your race is terrible. It has been terrible. But it is not your race that is making you eligible for the winner's circle. It's not your race that is making you eligible for heaven. It's his race. It's his perfect race. Look at it and see it. Now closely related to this is the third truth that we believe about the Lord Jesus. We affirm his death as the infinite God-man. His death as the infinite God-man. Our doctrinal statement says, He died on the cross for our sins. For centuries, theologians have called this the great exchange. Jesus' perfect record becomes mine. My terrible record becomes his. And he died for uh, us, bearing our sins. It happened six hours, one Friday afternoon on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And we talk about this at our church a lot. Every church should talk about this a lot. If, your church, if a church doesn't talk about this a lot, I don't know what they're talking about. 1 Corinthians 15 said, This is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I don't have anything more important to tell you. There's nothing more urgent. There's nothing more necessary. There's nothing more vital for you to believe. Christ died for our sins. That's why he took up human nature, so that he could become our substitute, and only he could become our substitute. Now why? Because in order to pay for our sins that are an offense against an infinite God, the infinite God-man had to be the substitute. Sin, of course, is cosmic treason against the infinite God, our creator God. How great is an offense against an infinite God? It's an infinite offense worthy of an infinite penalty. Several years ago, by law, maybe you've seen this, and you remember that when they made this change, on your credit card statement, they started uh, uh, putting some new information for you. So somewhere on your credit card statement will be a note to you about how long it will take you to pay off your credit card bill if you only make the minimum payment. I'm going to use an illustration. Clearly, you can't follow my math, but just roll with me for a little bit here, okay? So, so imagine you owe $5,000. Your credit card bill comes, you owe $5,000, and the minimum payment is $75. It'll say this in this wonderful chart on your statement. You owe $5,000. If you make the minimum payment of $75 every month, you will pay off this $5,000 in 47 years. It will tell you how long it takes to pay it off, right? Okay, let's imagine a chart of your sin debt. Okay? Chart of your sin debt. 
How long is it going to take, off, take you to pay off you as a finite human being? How long is it going to take for you to pay your sin debt to the infinite God for your infinite offense? The answer is eternity. So imagine so that there's another perfect human being, not a God-man, but a perfect human being, and he comes and he offers himself as a substitute for your sins. How long would that human being need to suffer? There is no end. Sufficient payment will never be made. This is why hell is eternal. It's the just penalty for an offense against a holy, infinite God. But the Lord Jesus is the infinite God-man, and thus payment for all who believe has been made in full. Payment made fully and completely. He's the only one who can make that sufficient payment. The source of your shame, that terrible guilt, has been washed away in full. Not just the shame of what you have done, but the shame of what has been done to you. There are critics of this. There are critics of this who say, you know, eternal punishment, that's unloving or it's unjust. But you know, all of those criticisms in some way diminish God's holiness or they diminish his love. He's the one who demands the payment, and he is the one who has made it in the Lord Jesus. This is the repeated call of the New Testament. God forgives sinners through Jesus, in Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. It invites everyone on the planet, every human being on the planet, to turn to Jesus and trust in him, to find life and forgiveness in him. And he really means it. He really means it. You can find forgiveness in him. Do you believe that? Have you ever heard of the uh, Babylon Bee? The Babylon Bee is an online uh, newspaper. It's a Christian satire. It has fictional stories. Most of them are fictional. They poke fun at some of the strange things that we do as followers of Jesus. So here's one of the headlines, the recent headline. Local youth pastor hasn't eaten anything but pizza and Mountain Dew for 13 years. Here's another one. Tim Tebow suspended for using performance-enhancing Bible verses. Or here's my favorite. Unforgivable sin actually dancing, Baptist scholar claims. It's been identified. They had one recently that stings a little bit more than usual. Let me read this headline to you. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, says woman whose moral compass is more developed than God's. Listen to the lead. Aurora, Indiana. While she understands the entirety of her forgiveness in God's eyes, granted by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which absolves her of any and all guilt now and forevermore, while simultaneously imputing her with the very righteousness of God the Son, local believer Kim Calhoun, due to her incredibly developed sense of morality, which eclipses even God's, revealed to sources Thursday that she cannot forgive herself for her past transgressions. Most of the time, shame needs gentleness. This stings a little bit, doesn't it? That's what good satire does, actually. (laughs) Maybe you're looking at the wrong ground, the wrong basis for your standing before God. It is always, chiefly, supremely, primarily, centrally, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not your performance. 
If you're tempted to forget that, you should remember some lines. Maybe you should memorize these lines. We sing them every now and then in a song that Charles Wesley wrote. He wrote it for himself because he kept sliding into this thinking that his standing before God was based on his performance. He wrote this song. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is graven on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They plead for me. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray. His own anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. What are you trusting in? It's the Lord Jesus. It's by his blood that we overcome the accusations of our adversary, the devil. Now it's past time for us to be finished. There's one more factor to consider that we'll do briefly. And that's this here. We believe finally here in the intercession of the priestly God-man. The intercession of the priestly God-man. You, you understand, you might come and say, well, I understand that my sins committed before I heard about the death of Jesus are covered by the cross, but what about my sins now? Well, the answer, of course, to that is that all of your sins were covered at the cross, but, but there's even more. The doctrinal statement says that Jesus, he, that he ascended into heaven, we're at the right hand of God the Father, he intercedes for us as our high priest, our advocate. John, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John, My dear children, I write to this so you will not sin. Stop sinning. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Payment's already been made. The Son says to the Father, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. Remember, I paid for that sin. My great-grandmother, Edna, had a sister. Her name was Luella. Uh, and Luella had a, a terrible compulsion to steal. Um, she would have been diagnosed probably as a kleptomaniac, I, it, some sort of anxiety disorder. I don't have enough stuff, and I don't have enough money, and I need more stuff, so she would steal things. It's terrible compulsion. Uh, Luella lived in a small town. There were a few shops, and she had a reputation in town for her thievery. She was a kleptomaniac. Apparently, she was not very good at it. She would go into the stores and steal things, and the storekeepers would write down everything that she had stolen, and her husband had made an arrangement with them. He was a wealthy man. He had a good reputation in town. He would go into the stores once a week and pay off Luella's debts. So she'd go in and steal things. The shopkeeper would write it down, and her husband would come and write a check uh, regularly to pay off her debts. The system worked because Luella's husband had the means to pay, and he had the reputation to pay. His word was good enough. His wealth was sufficient to pay for all of Luella's crimes. She had an advocate. 
We have an advocate with the Father. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has the reputation and the resources to intercede for you. If you ever have an opportunity to meet a man named Noble Doss, it is likely that Noble Doss, in the course of your conversation, will tell you about his responsibility for the downfall of the University of Texas football team. Uh, Noble Doss played for the team in 1941. He was a receiver on the team. They had a perfect season, and they were headed to the uh, national championship. Uh, that one fall day, though, in 1941, they played Baylor University. Noble Doss was running. Uh, there was nothing between him and the end zone. Uh, he was in a perfect position, and the quarterback, the longhorn quarterback, threw the ball to him. Noble Doss reached up to grab the ball, and it went between his hands, hit the ground. Uh, that, at that point in time, the, the longhorns were ahead by seven points, uh, but uh, Baylor uh, got the ball. They scored. They scored again. They won the game, and the longhorns didn't go to the Rose Bowl. A Doss, a Noble Doss lived a, a, an exemplary life in many ways. He went on to, uh, he got married, he became a father, a grandfather, he served in the Navy in World War II, he won two NFL titles with a little team that plays in Philadelphia. Uh, he's in the Texas High School Hall of Fame, Noble Doss is. But he told an interviewer not that long ago that he thinks about that dropped pass every single day. Fifty years after he dropped the pass in 1991, he met the new coach of the Longhorns. And, and as he told the coach, he met this guy for the first time. He's introducing himself, and he told him about that pass that he dropped. And he was weeping when he was talking to him about it. Do you think Noble Doss is a silly man? I bet you have memories like that, don't you? I don't think that this sermon will help you erase every memory that you have. Our accuser brings them up a lot. He'll bring them up to you a lot. But what I do hope is that the last few minutes has helped you know what to do with those thoughts when they come back to your mind. Bury them. Do it over and over and over again. Bury them under Jesus' perfect record. Bury them in his substitutionary death. Bury them in his intercession as our high priest. Stomp them out by your wonder at the God-man. Isn't that good enough to deal with your shame? This is what we believe. Let's pray, shall we?